Amen. Good evening. It's so good to be here on Wednesday night. I need Wednesday night. I can't go from Sunday to Sunday. I, I need this midweek. With not only with God, with you guys too. It's so good to see your faces. Genesis chapter 6 tonight. By the way, we've only got, what, 44 more chapters to go. <laughs> hey, before we get into Genesis 6 tonight, just continue to keep praying for the worship series on Sunday in Job. God is using it. He's moving in people's lives. And I just want to ask you, too, to just keep praying for me. This, the nature of this series is, is taxing me, just like it's taxing you as you receive it, as you listen to it. And so just pray that spiritually, emotionally, and physically, I can keep absorbing everything that God wants me to so that I can share it with you on Sunday the way God wants me to. Uh, but God is moving and working, and, and I just so appreciate all of you coming on Sunday and just being ready to, to dive into just some really difficult but deep and necessary stuff. As I said earlier, it's like, it's like that deep tissue massage. It, it hurts good, you know. It, it's stuff we need to deal with, but it, it does hurt. Genesis chapter 6 tonight, the very interesting chapter. Again, this is sort of Noah being introduced, if you will. At the end of chapter 5 was the introduction of Noah. It was since his, sort of his birth, who his father, who his grandfather was, and uh, all of that. But in chapter 6, it sort of begins with the context of the days of Noah that accentuates what kind of man he was that was different from his contemporaries. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But before we do, I want to begin by talking about the corruption of God's creation. If you remember back just a few chapters ago, chapter 1, chapter 2, the beautiful creation that God made, the universe that God created, and he went through the universe and he said, it's all good. Everything that I made, it's so good and it's so beautiful and it's so right. And yet it only took a little bit of time once sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, for everything that God made to be corrupted, to, in a sense, be ruined, to start to decay. And you see that happening here in the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6. Now, before we get into it, let me say this. There are several differences of interpretation and opinion on what's being said here in these verses. There's two lines of thinking when it comes to who the sons of God are, okay? Most people, or I shouldn't say most, there are many who believe that that was the godly line and that the godly line was choosing ungodly wives, and in a sense, godly was marrying ungodly, and that's never good, and we understand that. The other way to interpret sons of God is fallen angels, which obviously has its own deal, right? But I will just tell you, that's 
my interpretation. And let me tell you the reason why I interpret the sons of God as fallen angels. And then you're going to ask the next question, how did they have a sexual relationship with human women? I don't know exactly. I don't have all the answers. It might be that they inhabited human men who then had relationships with human women. But let me tell you why I interpret it this way. When I come to interpret the Bible, I always look at how does this phrase or this word, how is it interpreted every other time? In other words, if there's a pattern of this is the way that word or that phrase is always used, to me, that's a pretty powerful argument that that's the way it should be interpreted. And every time, every time, there's no exception, every time you see the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, it's always referring to angelic beings. It never refers to human beings. Never. And the other reason I interpret it this way is because it explains three passages in the New Testament that would really be sort of like, why is that even there if you didn't have this? In 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, I'm just going to give you these so you can look them up later. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude, verse 6, all refer to a group of fallen angels that went beyond the boundaries that God had set for them. Sort of what we've been talking about with Job, that, that under God's sovereignty, God sort of gives even the fallen angels parameters, right? And... In these three instances, you have a reference to the fact that there's a group of fallen angels that went beyond the boundaries that God set, and God now has locked up that group of angels in the abyss until the judgment. They are not allowed, like, the, like Satan and the other fallen angels, the demons, to move around the earth and move around the universe and all of that and do what they do. No, they're locked up. Why are they locked up? I think because of what they did here in the book of Genesis, you see. And here's the thing. Why would even the fallen angels want to do this? Because ever since Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, when God basically said to Adam and Eve, now that sin entered the world, I don't like it, but I've got a solution, right? God always has an answer for man's sin. And God said, I'm going to send a redeemer. And the redeemer one day is going to crush the serpent's head, right? A fatal blow to Satan, who is sim symbolized by the serpent, obviously the way he came to Eve in the garden. And I believe that ever since then, that the demonic realm and Satan was behind it, tried to corrupt the line of the Messiah so that Messiah could not come and redeem the world and mess up God's plan, okay? So that's why I interpreted it. Now, there are many great Christians and Bible teachers that interpret it the other way. Before we even got into it, I wanted to share with you why I interpret it this way. So look at it this way. However you interpret it, the bottom line of the first four verses is this, and really even into verse 5. The world is being corrupted. 
not only by fallen angels, but as we're going to see in verse 5, oh, human beings are culpable too because they're just as bad as the fallen angels. They have taken what God meant for good and they have messed it up royally. They have corrupted it, right? Down to the... To, and that's why God eventually says, I got to start over. I, I've got to just wipe the world clean and I've got to start over, you see. So let's look at these verses now. When humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth, by the way, that's good, right? That's what God said, be fruitful and multiply. So the sin is not in the multiplication. The sin is in the corruption. Daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of humankind were beautiful. By the way, this word is the same assessment that God made about his creation. He saw everything was good. Thus they took wives for themselves from any they chose. By the way, this choosing was not God's choice for them. So the Lord said, and again, you get the context, my spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely since they are mortal they will remain for 120 years. Again, there's differences of interpretation about this verse. My take on it is God is saying, look, as we saw last week, mankind now before the flood lives seven, eight, nine hundred years. The longer he lives, the worse it gets. My spirit, meaning my breath, is not going to stay in man that long anymore. And that after the flood, lifespans are reduced drastically so that mankind doesn't have as much time on the earth to mess things up, if you will, which is how I believe this is taken. 120 years would be, you know, at the beginning after the flood, sort of then the normal lifespan. Now, we know in our lifetime, even with all of our modern medicine and stuff, that's even reduced more. Now... You know, even in America and stuff, you know, you live into your mid-80s, 90s, you know, that's, that's really good. That's a good lifespan. Well, that's a lot different than Methuselah living 969 years, right? So God really shrunk the lifespan down, and I believe it's because it's like the longer I let man live, the more trouble he gets into. So... Then verse 4 introduces another interesting group of people, the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? Well, literally, it comes from the root meaning fallen ones, and it speaks of these giants. Now, here's the deal with the Nephilim. They existed before the flood, but we also know from books like Joshua and others, they existed after the flood, too. The same word is used in Joshua whenever the spies go in and they come back and report, we can't go in and take the land that God promised us because of these giants. So however these giants came into the, if you will, the genetic DNA makeup of human beings, somehow they were also impressed in Noah's family so that even after the flood and everyone else was destroyed, that was carried over after the flood so that there were giants that were produced. And we know even today there are giants around. I mean, they're not common, but there are people that are quite larger than others. Uh, I just read... Um, that the tallest uh, man just passed away, that it existed at that time, like nine feet something tall over there in China somewhere. I mean, that, that's big. 
That's Goliath, like, nine feet tall, right? So it happened. Again, not common, but, and we know down through history from people, you know, archaeologists digging up skeletons and stuff, that there are large races, you know, of people along with But here's the deal with them. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also after this, when the sons of God were having sexual relations with the daughters of humankind who gave birth to their children. And notice what it says about the Nephilim. They were the mighty heroes of old, the famous men. Now, that's not a good thing. God was not impressed. Because what it's saying is these were strong, valiant leaders, but they sought to magnify themselves and make a name for themselves behaving proudly, you see. Again, sort of going back to the line of Cain, contrasted the line of Seth. Yes, they were great men and they were great leaders on the earth, but they didn't glorify God with what they did. They didn't magnify him. They became famous in their own right, you see. Now again, corruption, not the way God would have it. And no, again, no matter how you want to interpret sons of God and all of that, the bottom line is God doesn't like what he's seeing. In fact, notice verse 5. Even up to this point, if you go, well, that's primarily those first four verses about the corruption of the fallen angels on earth, don't miss the fact that verse 5 clearly states human beings were just as bad as the fallen angels. Because notice what the Bible says about human beings at this point in history. The Lord saw, by the way, God sees everything, right? He sees everything. Everything good, but also every wicked, evil thing that's done. God sees it. And he saw the wickedness of humankind and how wicked it had become great on the earth. How evil, how bad the world had become. Again, notice, not just some, God's... Uh, expression about this is that every inclination or purpose planned of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. You, can you get any worse than that? Basically, everything that came into their head was an evil purpose. And then they would seek to plan it and pursue it. And it wasn't just evil some of the time. Notice, according to God, verse 5, it was all the time. Bad, wicked, all the time. Nobody was pursuing good except one man. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, but, but think about that. At the time of Noah, there's only one person of faith on earth. That's Noah. Oh, and by the way, let me bring this up at this point. You know what Jesus says in the New Testament about the days of Noah? As it is, or as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days when the Son of Man comes back. In other words, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad, just as it was in the days of Noah. Notice it, beginning in verse 6. So we talked about the corruption of God's creation. And again, think about this. Back to chapter 1 of Genesis. Everything that God made was good and right and beautiful, and it was just perfect. And when sin came in, 
man, did it get messed up and messed up quickly. And it went from the most wonderful creation down to just ruin and decay and debauchery and hurt and pain and all these things that was coming out of sin, you see. So the next thing I want to talk about, because this really then shows, too, the heart of God and the emotions of God. You, you want to know why we have emotions? Because we were made in the image of God, and that means God is an emotional being. I think even a lot of Christians sometimes think God is impervious to, to pain and to things that go on, like it doesn't affect God. God is greatly affected. In fact, you see this here beginning in verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made humankind on the earth. That doesn't mean that he thinks he made a mistake, because obviously God knew what was going to happen ahead of time. It means to sigh from pain and grief. God was hurt by what he saw. He was hurt by what he saw because he created human beings to have such great potential and manage and steward and rule over all of the universe that he created. And now he sees what they're doing to it and what they're doing to each other. What Cain did to his own brother Abel. What others have done. There's just so much violence and wickedness and evil and it pains God deeply. Notice it says he was highly offended. In the Hebrew, it means he was hurt. He was wounded. He was cut to the heart by what he saw happening. Again, let's be reminded, God doesn't just see some of the wickedness that goes on on earth. He sees every act of wickedness. He sees every thought of evil and wickedness. He hears and sees it all, and he absorbs it all. You and I, we see just a little bit. We really do. And it hurts us and pains us to think about what's going on in the world and how people are treating each other and whatever. We don't have any idea. And to be honest with you, I don't want to know any more than what I know. But what I'm trying to get at is God sees it all. And it affects him. And we have to remember that. He says, so the Lord, verse 7, said, I will wipe away or literally blot out humankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. Everything from humankind to animals, including creatures that move on the ground and birds of the air, for I regret, I sigh deeply from the pain and grief that they have brought me, is what God is saying. The heartache of God the heartache of God. And think about that even today. As God is up there in heaven, looking down upon the earth. Yeah, he sees all the good that we and others do, but he also sees all the evil and wickedness and bad that happens every day. I think that's one of the reasons why Peter says that a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years to God. God absorbs more in one day than we would if we lived for a thousand years. In fact, even more than that. What he takes in and what he sees and what he hears in a 24-hour period, we, we couldn't even begin to understand what that looks like. Eight billion people around the world. But now I want you to see this. 
Verse 8 of chapter 6 begins to remind us of the distinctiveness of Noah in his day. Noah was different. It's okay to be different. Remember we talked about that? And think about it. Noah is the only one. It's not like Noah has a lot. In fact, I'll, I'll say this. I, I cannot definitively prove it, but I will say this. There is nowhere in the Bible that says that Noah's wife or any of his children were people of faith. It doesn't say that. It says they followed him on the ark. But the language really in the Hebrew is that Noah stands alone. Maybe the only person of faith, even within his own family, but certainly within the whole world at that time, he was the only person of faith. Sometimes when you and I think, man, we're all alone, think about Noah. I love his name, though. It means rest. And man, Noah needed to find his rest in God. And notice it says, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Unlike anybody else. And here's why. The word found means he was looking for it. He was seeking it. In other words, other people could have found God's favor, but Noah was the only one that was seeking God's favor. And by the way, the word favor simply means grace. Noah understood, even then, I cannot earn or merit my standing with God. If I'm going to be in God's presence and if I'm going to have a relationship with God, it's going to be based on grace. So Noah understood his own sinfulness. He accepted that. Because to find favor means he was willing to humble himself before God. Because that's how you and I find favor and grace with God. That's what the New Testament teaches that God resists the proud but gives grace to who? Humble. The humble. And you and I must humble ourselves, and, and part of humility is relying and depending on God and understanding that our standing and our approach to God is all because of his grace. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we can earn it or merit it in any way. We come simply because he's a gracious God. And he allows us by his grace to enter into him. That's what Noah found in the presence of the Lord. And by the way, notice that God is a God of grace. And the writer of Hebrews talks about him having a throne of grace. And, and God is a gracious God and says, look, I'll pour out my grace and favor and blessing to you. But just make sure that you humble yourselves before me and understand that I'm God and you're not. And that in no way are you coming before me because you're good enough, but you're coming before me because of the righteousness that I can impute to you eventually here through my son Jesus Christ as they look forward to the cross. The distinctiveness of Noah. In fact, notice verse 9. This is the account of Noah, the one who found rest in God. And I believe also the one that God found rest in. Because Noah was the only one in the whole world. Three things about Noah I want you to see. Noah was, first of all, a godly man. It means that he was righteous towards God, or I like to say he was aligned with God. Aligned with God. We talk a lot about that. That's what it means to be righteous or godly. Think again of, you know, your tires need to be aligned on your car. 
Everything needs to be lined up so that it goes straight, so that it functions properly and smoothly. God wants us to be aligned with him. That's Noah. Second, he was blameless. This means to be permeated with God. Not just aligned with God, but permeated with God. The New Testament would call this filled with God. Filled with God, which is why the New Testament tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the fullness of God. Be permeated with God. Aligned with God, Noah was. Permeated with God, Noah was. Every area of his life. Noah didn't compartmentalize his walk with God or his spirituality. It wasn't like, God, I'll give you these areas of my life, but this one's off limits, this one's mine. No, to be permeated with God means every area of his life was touched by God, and God was allowed in to every area of Noah's life, and the same should be said of us. That's what we should strive for, to be aligned with God, to be permeated with God. And then notice this, among his contemporaries. Why is this phrase used throughout the story of Noah? To speak about the fact that in his time, we've talked about that. God gives us only our time, and this is our time. And that in his time, in his God-given opportunity, he was different from everybody else. No one else was aligned with God. No one else was permeated with God, and no one else walked with God. He walked with God. Same thing it said about Enoch back in chapter 5. There's only a couple people in the Bible that are said to have walked with God. Enoch, chapter 5 of Genesis. Noah, chapter 6. Do you know who the other one is specifically? Levi. Levi. Three people in the Bible specifically are said to have walked with God. By the way, the word walk means to have a continual connection and conversation leading to a familiarity and closeness. We talked about that last week with Enoch. And then it says Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right? So again, the difference of Noah. Noah was different. He stood out amongst all the other people of the earth. And that's especially true when he starts to build this ark. Can you imagine the ridicule? First of all, nobody had ever seen rain. Noah's telling them, preaching at them, you know, God's going to bring a flood and, and judgment. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're a crazy man. And you're spending your, you know, a big part of your life out there building this huge whatever it is. They had never seen a boat or a ship. They'd never seen anything like that before. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks because the ark is a fascinating thing to study as well. But now I want you to see this. After we see the corruption of God's creation and the heartache of God and the distinctiveness of Noah, we also see God's revelation to Noah. Why? Because he walks with God. He has this connection and conversation with God. And again, God always shares more with those who are closer to him. You see, if we want to know more about what God's planning and what God's doing, then we just need to start walking with God. It's just like you in a human relationship. The more you walk with somebody, the closer you are in friendship to somebody, the more familiar you get with them and what's going on in their heads and, you know, what's in their heart and all that. You, you get to know them better, right? The same thing is true with God. And, and the more you get close to somebody, the more you each reveal to each other. Well, guess what? That's, that's true of us and God. 
The closer we get to God, the more we want to share with God everything and anything. Because we know there's nobody better to share everything with, the good, the bad, and the ugly, than God. And God is willing to share and give insight and wisdom and understanding to, to us when we walk closer with Him. So notice the backdrop here. The earth was ruined, totally corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes back. God saw the earth, and indeed it was ruined, for all living creatures on the earth were sinful. So God said to Noah, I love that. God's going to tell Noah, Noah, here's what I'm going to do. And guess what? I got my eye on you. You're going to be a big part of what I got planned. I've decided that all living creatures must die or perish, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm about to destroy them and the earth. But guess what, Noah? I'm not going to destroy you or your family. I'm going to give you a plan that is my provision to deliver you and keep you safe through my judgment. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the coming weeks, but that's important because the way God dealt with Noah is exactly the way God deals with us right now. God says, I'll give you the tools and everything you need to go through the difficult days, not to avoid them, but to go through them. See, Noah still and his family still had to go through the flood, if you will. They were preserved through the flood. They were protected. They were provided for by God through the flood. But they still had to go through the flood. Same thing for us today. God doesn't want us to avoid the difficult days we're living in, but he wants us to learn to rely and depend upon his sufficient provision to get through the difficult days. So God says, verse 14, Make for yourself an ark of cypress wood, Make rooms in the ark, cover it with pitch inside and out. This is how you should make it. The ark is to be this long, this wide, this many feet high. Make a roof for the ark, finish it. Leave. God gives them all the details of how this is to be built, right? I'm about to bring, verse 17, floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under the sky all the living creatures that have the breath of life in them. Everything that is on the earth will die. By the way, this is really cool. What to me? Maybe it won't be. Remember who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. Moses is the author of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Okay, human author. God, God's word, but human author. I think when Moses got to this point, he had to have a smile on his face. And here's why. Because when Moses started writing about the ark of Noah, he remembered his childhood. Because the same concept and word is used for the little basket that Moses' mother put him in and set him off down the Nile River. That was an ark, you see. That was, that was a place to, for him to be set so that he could ride upon the waters to safety. So I'm sure that went through his mind as he was writing these words. But then notice this revelation from God. I will establish or confirm my covenant with you. First time the word covenant is used in the Bible, right here, Genesis 6.18. First time. God is saying, Noah, not only am I going to give you instructions that's going to provide this 
ark for you that's going to save you and your family through this judgment that's to come on the earth. I'm going to establish a constitution, if you will, with you, with assurances and promises from me. And notice, this covenant is not some piece of paper, some, some cold contract that God is making with him and Noah. It's a relational covenant, because notice what he says. I'm going to establish my covenant with you. It's going to be between me and you. Why? Because the covenant is establishing a partnership. God is saying, I'll do my part, you do your part, and you'll be saved. God always wants to do that. We enter into a covenant relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ when we are saved. And from that moment on in our salvation, God is saying to us, I want to partner with you now for the rest of your life. You and I are going to partner together, God and you, and we're going to do stuff. And then like I talked about in the discipleship series, then God might bring some other Christian into our life to where we can partner with them and partner with God at the same time. Partnerships. That's what a covenant is. God is simply saying, I want to be your partner. I'll do, I'll do what you cannot do. And one of the things that he knew was beyond what Noah could do, or at least in the time that Noah had, and, and to be able, is to get all the animals there. So that's why back in Genesis chapter 6, sorry, I lost my place. I got so excited. I'm flipping around here. If you notice in Genesis chapter 6, verse 20, what God, of the birds and their kinds, of the cattle of their kinds, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, to every kind, will come to you. God promises Noah in this covenant. Part of it is you don't have to worry about going out and catching all the animals. I will draw them to you. I will bring them. You just concentrate on making the ark, being a herald of righteousness, tell people, be a witness, testify that judgment's coming, give them an opportunity all those years that you're building the ark so that mankind cannot say, I didn't have a chance. I didn't have a chance. I mean, there, there are three things here, even in this chapter, that establishes the righteousness of God to bring about the flood. One, how corrupt everybody was, how bad the world was. Second, how much time he gave for them to get their house in order, at least 100 years, at least 100 years. And then the third is, Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher or literally a herald of righteousness. Day after day, while he was building the ark, he was letting everybody know. And I'm sure the world was, it, the, the, the news was spreading there's a nut down here. His name is Noah. He's building this box. It's huge. He says a flood's coming. What in the world? Yeah. They had no excuse. They had no excuse. But I love the fact here that God is revealing all this to Noah and saying, I want to partner with you. Same thing God wants to do with us today. But one final thing I want us to see, verse 22, and that is the faith of Noah. Because remember, faith is different than belief. Demons believe in God and tremble. Faith is when we positively respond to God's revelation. Well, God has just revealed his plan 
and even his purpose to Noah, his friend, who walked with him every day. Now, is Noah going to respond by faith or not? Yeah, he responds in faith. Notice, and Noah did all that God commanded him. He did indeed. <laughs> he did it. He didn't, and he didn't just do some of it. Notice, he did it all. He did it all. Noah's faith responded to God's revelation. How can you and I apply this to our lives? To do what is ours to do following God's leading and direction. That's where our faith, in a sense, meets God right now. What is it? What is it right now in our lives that God is leading and directing us to do? What is he revealing to us? And how are we responding to it? That's faith. God revealed his plan and purpose and provision, and Noah responded by doing it all, doing it all in Deed. In closing, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 7. Hebrews. Because Noah is in the, what we call the hall of fame of faith. And in Hebrews eleven seven, here's what it says about Noah. By faith, Noah, when he was warned, by God, about things not yet seen. Because what does faith do? Faith doesn't go by sight, right? We walk by faith, responding to God's revelation. We don't walk by sight. Because up to this point, there was no such thing as rain. They had never seen a flood. And God is saying, I'm bringing floodwaters to engulf the world. Yeah. Right. God, if you said it, I believe it. That's faith. I don't have to see it. I don't have to have experienced it yet. I don't have to have other people tell me, yeah, no, if, if you're revealing that to me, God, then I'm responding by faith. With reverent regard, literally, with reverence and respect for God, Noah constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. And notice this. Through his faith, he condemned the world. How did he condemn the world? Because if Noah could have done it, then anybody could have done it. If Noah could have responded to God in faith, then anybody could have. It wasn't just exclusively for Noah. God's invitation to get on the ark and this provision would have been to anybody that wanted to come. Just like the gospel of Jesus Christ is today. Anybody that wants to come into God's family can come, but you've got to come God's way. You've got to come by faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the way you come. And if you come, then there's room for you. There's always room if you want to come God's way. But because we responded to God's call and his revelation in our life, that means anybody could because we're no better than they are. We're all sinners before God. So the fact that even you and I have re responded to God's call and have accepted Christ, in a sense, we condemn everybody else who hasn't yet. Because if we can, then they can too. That's exactly what Noah did. And became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Faith. So in this wonderful chapter today, 
We've seen the corruption of God's creation. We've seen the heartache of God, the distinctiveness of Noah. We've seen the revelation of God to Noah. And then we've seen Noah's response in faith to God's revelation. So here's what I want us to be challenged with as we end. I want us to be challenged and encouraged, because if Noah can do it, we can do it with his faith. What is it right now? Let's get real practical. What is it right now in your life that God is revealing to you? What is he leading and directing you to do? And are we then fully and completely responding to what God is speaking into our lives and revealing to us. That's faith. And that's what God's looking for. See, we don't have to figure it out. God will always reveal it first. But God then, once he reveals something to us, expects us to follow, just like Noah. I love that verse. Noah did everything that God commanded. He did indeed. May that be said of us as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for what a wonderful beginning of the story of Noah and the great flood. God, I pray tonight that, Lord, you have used our time of worship tonight, God, under Nicole's leadership, and and that you've used our time in your great word, God, to just strengthen our hearts, God, and move in our hearts, and maybe make room for more of you in our hearts tonight, God. May we strive to be like Noah, a man aligned with you, permeated with you, walking with you, and responding to you, God. And that brings us right back to worship, because that's what worship is, too. Worship is simply responding to you, God. You reach out to us. You express your love and mercy and grace and all of that to us, and we simply respond back in praise and worship and adoration and blessing to you. And so, God, I pray that even as we end the day today and as we begin tomorrow, if you allow us to live one more day, God, on this earth, that we will be filled not only with faith, but we will be filled with praise, and we will respond to you, God, in a way that is fitting for our wonderful Lord and Savior. These things we pray in his name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.